Hey all, welcome to Film Suck, a Patreon podcast in which we ponder the work of art in the age of crap cinema. I'm Eileen Jones. I'm Dolores McElroy. And today we are talking about the Barbara Streisand autobiography, which is called My Name is Barbara. It actually came out in November 2023, but it, it takes three months to read the 900 plus page book. <laughs> so that's why it's taken this long for us to talk about it. Um, it covers everything, seemingly, starting from her difficult upbringing in Brooklyn as a working class Jewish girl um, uh, whose father died so young she, she never knew her father um, and whose relationship to her mother was fraught to say the least to much more about her mother later. So her first ambition was to be an actress. She turned to singing when those opportunities arose first and found her early fame in nightclubs and on Broadway, particularly in her career defining role as Fanny Bryce in Funny Girl. From there, it was a short step, obviously, to movie stardom and ongoing fame as a great interpretive singer with a huge and memorable voice who, who moved um, from you know, hit songs and elaborately designed albums that took on, you know, Broadway songbook to pop to rock to disco and even classical, classical operatic pieces inspired by her love of Maria Callas. We'll get into talking about how well all that went. I mean, she, even though she had a lot of hits. Um, was that really what favored her her amazing voice? She took ever greater control over her movie, both her albums and her movie career, um, moving from acting to producing and then directing as well as starring in in the films Yentl, Prince of Tides, and The Mirror Has Two Faces. She did a surprising number of TV specials as well as concerts, even after developing really crippling stage fright. Um, she got involved in mildly progressive politics. She did a lot of interior decorating and impressing <laughs> She collected art, um, uh, many, many pursuits. Uh, her memoir also covers her many personal relationships from marriages to actor, um, actors Elliot Gould and James Brolin to romantic, extensive romantic involvements with Canadian Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau, producer John Peters, actor uh, Don Johnson, and that's just to name a few. And she had lifelong friendships with so many people. We can't even mention all the One of the more surprising ones is Marlon Brando. Um, so to say the least, there is a, a lot to cover um, here. But first, let's just get into the, 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 the experience of the read itself, when we, just the memoir itself. So Dolores, what is your take? Okay, it, it's Barbara is such good company. I found it really delightful to read. It's very obviously not ghost written very much in her voice. There are often like even sentence fragments and there are many sentences that begin with, put it this way. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it's like her distinctive Brooklynese definitely comes through. Um, I found her charming all the way through, even when I was very frustrated with her. Like mm -hmm. she would go on for like 30 pages about the editing of say the way we were or mm -hmm. The last scene in *The Star Is Born*, and I just—if I—I think I'm one of like twelve people who would even remotely care about those topics. And yes. even I would you aren't the audience. There is no such thing as the audience. You are the audience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but man, this girl is obsessive. And, oh. and, yeah. Uh, but so I would say, even I mean. It was an emotional roller coaster for me. Even the act of weighing in on Barbara Streisand caused an existential crisis. I've also <laughs> written a piece about this memoir, and I've had some real, like, just grappling with, like, who am I to even say anything, especially something smartass and shitty about Barbara Streisand? <laughs> like, she has fought so hard and like I, I am a huge fan and she has given me so much. I mean, truly, like, you know, there were times in my life I would say Barbara Streisand saved me 
like literally, you know, like just giving me so much comfort and strength and beauty and like, who the fuck am I to sit back and just like, you know, weigh in on her 1000 pages of, you know, <laughs> life. So I had a real like, what is the role of the critic? <laughs> like, uh, um, just because I love her so much. But, you know, I came around to thinking like, all right, the role of the critic it exists for a reason. And I, you know, I think we do have to assess Barbara as honestly as we can. So it was a delight to read. But there are totally times where, like, she floated way too far from the ground by the end, just existing amongst, you know, world leaders and Hollywood A-list only. And that Mm -hmm. gets dull. It's boring. Mm -hmm. You know, one more Donna Karen dress, one more Aspen ski trip. Like, at the end, I'm like, oh, Babs, hard to care, girl. The only time it (laughs) comes back sometimes when she's in that far from the ground phase, which is like, you know, since 1970. Then it's only fun from a, a... sort of place of camp enjoyment like when she looks out the window and has a branch painted so that it can conform to her artistic vision (laughs) then then I feel like I'm in the late 19th century and it's she's like a a decadent and I'm reading against nature (laughs) and then it's fun again you know and it's just like so fucking wild or she writes about cloning her dog with like zero self-consciousness she did she cloned her dog but there's like no reflection on how mm-hmm. that might be odd yeah. <laughs> or like mm-hmm. an interesting use of funds and science, <laughs> like, just no awareness. Um, so again, that those moments can be recouped for, for like camp enjoyment, but mm-hmm. like, you know, weekends with Prince Charles or Madeline Albright, I don't give a shit, you know? Yeah, exactly. Boy, yeah. Boy, do I ever not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Eileen, what was your, ex- but like, okay, before we go on, like, we're going to spend some time. Early Babs is so fun. Like hearing yes. her tell about her, like coming up and becoming, mm-hmm. bursting onto the fucking scene at 18 out of nowhere. This bitch comes out of nowhere, like doesn't mm-hmm. even read music and like, whoosh, like fully formed artists. Like that is thrilling. And we will, we will discuss. I will shut up. What did you yes. think, Eileen? Yes. Well, I, I'm with you on that. I find the early stuff absolutely riveting. Um, because for exa- you exactly said what I was going to say. She's so fully formed. And this is someone who didn't even, her dream wasn't even to be a singer. <laughs> right. I mean, she, of course, incorporates her dream to be an actor into her singing. She's very much giving a, giving a, usually a dramatic performance, sometimes a comic performance, sometimes both, in each song. That's a, a big part of her impact. But it's so great to see this total working class. Nobody knows who the hell she is. And and then just she's so awesome from the beginning that the biggest, most jaded heavy hitters in in various types of show business are just like over just like what? I mean, my, one of my favorite <laughs> anecdotes is Betty Davis coming to see her. Everybody came to see her play Fanny Bryce um, on stage in Funny Girl and saying my jaw is on the ground. I mean, what was she, 20, 21? Uh, Yeah. And and it's like, and everyone was just like, how can she be this great? (laughs) And and great as an actor and a singer and and have such insane flair and be such a star and be such everything fully formed that it's just impossible. And yet there she is. Plus, she's Mm -hmm. got a kind of anachronistic quality about her that makes her even more fascinating. Mm -hmm. I mean, here she is super, super young (laughs) and she's singing not even just old standards in fact she gets criticized and jokes about you know always being asked why don't you sing more more standards 
She'll find the oddest <laughs> songs exactly. that are highly personal to her from totally failed, <laughs> you know, uh, musical theater and make those her own in this way that's just like, how do you have a complete interpretive faculty fully blown at that age? It just, she's, so she's such a phenomenon. That's just phenomenal. Reading about that, I could read about that for four 900 pages. Mm-hmm. It, it, for me, of course, it all, you know, I'm going to tread very lightly because I know how you feel. It would, be like, <laughs> if you reversed it, it would be like, let's do a referendum on the Coen brothers and you were highly critical. And I would just be like, what? <laughs> it would be, so I would not do that to you. But for me, it was a much, it was a hilariously difficult read after the <laughs> I mean, literally, I have been reading this book off and on, I think since early December. <laughs> And I just couldn't make any headway. I'd just be like, oh, well, now I've been reading till my eyes bleed. I must be halfway there. And I'd be like at 22% of the reading. It's so long. I, I still have done. I'm up to 80. I believe I'm at 82 or 3% right now. I just, so I don't know that I will ever finish it. It's, and, it's, and it's that very lack of awareness that the first is helping to power her. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, She's so driven and she's so used to being considered odd mm-hmm. that she just, it's, she doesn't seem phased. She just mm-hmm. seems to have no nerves when it comes to like going to auditions and blasting them out of the room and being like, so, you know, just like, <laughs> obviously I'm fab- fabulous. You know what I know. They're just, just, just someone who went on the Judy Garland, the Judy Garland show. She's again, 21 or something. Judy 21. Garland is, I don't know, 45. Yes. What? She's. Do uh, Barbara is fucking twenty years old in that appearance, and, and then guess who looks the more anxious? Judy Garland. Yeah, <laughs> and even talks about that Judy Garland was was she couldn't believe it herself, terrified, and literally was clutching her hand in terror. Mm-hmm. And while as far as you can judge. Barbara Streisand is cool as a cucumber. <laughs> just like, yep, it's Wednesday, and I'm singing with Judy Garland. Fine. So so. So that is wonderful in her youth because he just powers her through and makes her, and I think helps make her as brilliant as she is. But it does start to get to weigh on you. You know, you're right. Other than there's a camp hilarity to it. Um, (laughs) As she goes on, um, Mm -hmm. she just has no self-consciousness about, there's a million things. I wish, I wish I was a good mimic. Because I would love to be able to convey some of her her more hilarious statements. Like like when she does Yentl, you know, and she's been obsessed with this for ages, and she's just going into every kind of detail that's going to, you know, lead her to. She stars, she directs, and she and she produces too, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So she's doing everything, and you know, she'll just throw in things that are like, "Well, I we said it in 1904 because four is my favorite number." Yes, exactly. <laughs> you'll be like, "What?" <laughs> she just tosses these things in casually. Well, that's my favorite color, so that's why that whole set had to be that color, or whatever. Yes. You no. Know, so everything becomes not only is highly, but everything can be because she's so insanely successful. Things I didn't even know she were super successful were, you know, like, like a I was song. like, really? That was a big or songs that I didn't realize were were became number one hits and stuff. Yeah. Which I just I wasn't following her closely. I hated the eighties, nineteen eighties, so much. <laughs> At that point, I just stopped with Barbara Streisand. I stopped with most things. I mean, I kind of tried to some extent to remove myself mentally from the culture, unless there were people who were clearly so spiky that they were engaging in some 
you know, some way, either through humor or just, you know, you're either pulling a David Lynch or a Coen Brothers, or you're doing something mm-hmm. that, that is abrasive, abrasive in the culture. And she's not. She just goes smoothly on. You would never know that Barbara Streisand found anything inferior about doing disco. She's just, she's just not phased by moving into, okay. I mean, she's, she will say, I mean, that it doesn't particularly favor my, my highest choice of what I do in music, mm-hmm. but she doesn't seem at all phased to be like, sure, me and Donna Summer are now going to do some disco song. And, and it's great. True. It went to a number one. What, what was it again? Um, enough is enough. Yeah. I did remember that. Yeah. But I mean, so she's just as, she's just as happy with that as a huge colossal hit as, as anything else. You know, when movies are successful that I'm like, really, that was, she's like, yeah, she doesn't seem to mind what's happening. She'll note, obviously Ronald Ray, she's, she's, she's left in a kind of, you know, mild way. You know, she, she can recognize obviously that the the Reagan era is not great um, in so Mm -hmm. many ways, politically, socially, every way. Um, But she has no sensitivity to what's going on in entertainment trends, as far as I can tell, that bother her. It's like, true. She does not express. Right. Yeah. I mean, maybe we can get into this. I do think she expresses some hesitancy about the music, but you're right. Like moving into making all those shitty films. Yeah. It, she doesn't seem to care. She doesn't seem to care. <laughs> Unless she actually know. Like there was one she mentioned. What was it? All night long. Yeah. Which she has a favor to her agent, Sue Menger. And- yeah. She knew it was bad, and she was like, "I shouldn't have done that." Or and then there was another one that she got talked into by John Peters, her longtime partner. For Pete's partner. sake, yeah. And he, was, and he was, you know, her taste in men is is so terrible. <laughs> for Except a for long James time. Brolin, I, mean, I, I haven't got to the end. I assume there's payons, more payons to uh, to James Brolin for being, yeah, a and, he's and a good guy after and all that. But yeah, <laughs> she's with like Don. She's just with known like lechy, nasty. You're like really years with John Peters. I, mean, I know a legendary scumbag. You're just I like, feel like what? she wrote that chapter very carefully, or those chapters, because like it's very widely known that they fought all the time. All the and time. He, yeah, and he one hundred percent made his career off of her. Off of her. Oh, he does. That's very clear. I mean, that's yeah. clear. That yes, he's he's horning in on things. He's taking credit for things. She says he's a liar. I mean, he can't help it. He t- yep. tries to take credit for things he had nothing to do with all the time. She's yep. constantly having to challenge him, and it really does. It's a really interesting portrait of being a, a, a pretty young woman with somebody who's awful, and you're just like, why are you? <laughs> And she tries to describe why she found him attractive. But, you know, obviously all in hindsight, she knows, wow, that was that was strange. That was a strange relationship to be in for a long time. I I can't help but think like she was just she knows way more dirt that went in there. There's I'm sure he did way shittier things. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. But she's but they're not in in the book. And, you know, sometimes it is interesting. You're right. In that case, you feel like she could really go for the jugular if she wanted to. And she's not going to. But Mm -hmm. then there's other people that she just savages. Yeah, you know, and, and we're, like, there's no mercy. And one of them is—it's shocking to me because I like his work. His, his Gar- writer director Garson Kanan, <laughs> and he's—he's he's one of the directors she works with on Funny Girl, and mm-hmm. she just well, she's she will give him nothing. She claims on, on Broadway, yeah, on Broadway yeah. that mm-hmm. he never gives her a direction the entire time. She claims he never like there's nothing from him, and I'm like, really, <laughs> this experienced writer director who is like. You know, Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn's go-to guy. Mm-hmm. And he's just not, 
he's not doing anything. And, but, and that's definitely not his take. His take is, if you read Tracy and Hepburn, his, you know, a lot of made up stuff about Tracy and Hepburn, by the way, but, but he, his account <laughs> of working with Barbara Streisand makes it sound like they have a warm um, relationship and they really work to figure out the character together. And he gets advice from Tracy and Hepburn, who both knew Fanny Rice very well. And so his whole account is glowing and he thinks she's wonderful. Uh-oh. But she just is like, he was a dead fish. He offered nothing. And thank God he finally get, gets bounced out. And I forget who then moves in and takes over his slot. Uh-huh. But things like that, where there's just giving no quarter. She even rips into his, his longtime wife, Ruth Gordon, as mm-hmm. like, the only thing she notes is, I don't know what was, what, what was with them. They, would do <laughs> they things send their like, laundry home. <laughs> yeah. To be, to be laundered and they had to have their sheets, special sheets shipped wherever they went. And they were just these two... You know, untalented kooks apparently that that were in her life. So, so no quarter for some people, but yes, you could tell really soft peddling for others. Yeah. Um, so that is interesting. Like, who did she decide to savage <laughs> in that way, and who, and who does she kind of let off the hook? Um, there yeah. is a lot of score settling. There always is. I mean, it's rare to read any memoir where. Well, who can be above that? If I were going to write mine, I would settle some scores myself. <laughs> but only I would be settling them with people you'd never heard of, so you wouldn't care. But this is like a woman who knows everybody. She mm-hmm. knows every- the people she pulls out of her hat is that she knows or is great friends with, or what you're just like, what? <laughs> whole, whole thing about her being best, best like mother daughter relationship with Bill Clinton's mom, Virginia. We'll get to that. Yeah, it's just like what. <laughs> Like what? You met who? You dated who? You were best friends with who? And mm-hmm. it's through the whole book. So that has a great deal of fascination. So anyway, the, the Barbara's self-creation, fab, just fantastic. Or self-realization, since she seemed to have it all from the beginning. And it was just a matter of like fine-tuning something. Mm-hmm. That's all fabulous. But I really find her harder and harder to take the longer it goes on. So you can imagine the, just the, because the things you find charming, <laughs> which is a kind of she has to be herself she can do no other kind mm-hmm. of thing which she even talks about she just says things it just comes out of her mouth and, <laughs> you, know, her <laughs> you know so sometimes she's going to offend people because she'll just say what she thinks uh-huh i find that much more charming in younger people <laughs> than i do in people who've been around for i don't know how old she is now 80 years 81 yeah <laughs> It just gets to be like, you know, don't you think you kind of need to start getting a little more complex in your relationships? You know, not when you've been famous for forever. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not mm-hmm. unusual, actually, to, to read uh, if you read a lot of memoirs and, you know, autobiographies and biographies, by the way. Someone who's been a star since they were basically a teenager is going to be marked by it in that everyone has deferred to them all their lives. And that does things to people. Yes. Um, so it's not like you wouldn't encounter this if you were reading Elizabeth Taylor's <laughs> various biographies or something. You would be. Um, right. It distorts personality and it makes gives you an outsized sense of yourself being you are what matters. Right. And what you think is what matters. So her going into just insane detail on every outfit she wears. <laughs> she does I really care. She designs them from scratch. Yeah. Yes, often. Yes. Yeah. She's, she's a real esthete. She really comes up, again, very, very young. She's mm-hmm. wearing vintage when nobody's wearing vintage. You know, she's really. And for her, really, that means like 1890s to 1920s. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and so people, of course, this kook persona thing that often affects the casting in movies, she's often playing a kook, um, seems to come right out of people's impressions of her. 
there's a hilarious thing. Who who describes her? He's descri- they're describing her immense talent. I think it's her funny girl. And they're saying she's this nut and you don't think she's going to be able to pull it off because she doesn't seem to be paying any attention to you. Mm-hmm. She's eating all the time. <laughs> she's so constantly. hungry. Oh, Our girl is so yes. hungry. Constantly <laughs> eating, constantly, you know, yammering, doesn't seem to be paying any attention, seems scattered. And then she'll get up there and she got every, every direction, every, every line, every note, everywhere, everything's perfect. And you're like, how? Yeah. She clearly um, has a mind like a steel trap. She's not yeah. an intellectual, but she is so intelligent in, in yeah. her, you know, in her way. Like she remembers timing, you know, obviously mm-hmm. music. She doesn't read music to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, notes, like every everything that has to do with like the whole stage or film picture is just mm-hmm. in there. <laughs> like it's very impressive. Yeah, she seems she seems to have notes. She she's she is kind of born to especially be a producer. Mm-hmm. Because because she can have that that huge overarching vision, and all the minutia just stays in her mind. Yep. So that is really impressive to read. I mean, even though she's describing it herself, but you you can tell <laughs> that that's yep. really reflecting how she how she works. She can retain all that stuff. And in mm-hmm. music, there is a thing about how she just has ears like a bat, so yeah. she can hear the slightest 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 things that that are off. That 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 even you know. <laughs> You know, the arranger doesn't hear at first. Or the conductor. Yeah. And then they're like, oh my God, you're right. It was trans. What was it? It was literally transcribed wrong a couple yep. of times. She's yep. working with Stephen Sondheim. It happens again. And he's like, oh, you're right. That word that didn't make any that It's because they wrote down the wrong word. That's not the word. You were right. So she, there's an awful lot. That's another thing that after a while can get grating. <laughs> so many anecdotes are about how she was right. <laughs> they're all about how she they're was everywhere. <laughs> I was reading just some loose reactions to it, though, and it's hilarious how people are like, I loved it. She's so honest and she'll cop to all her mistakes. And I was like, no, there's like so many stories. The end point is. And then even though no one knew it, then I was right. And then it turned out I was right. And then I was like, oh. <laughs> like, poor. I mean, sometimes and again, there's something it's not like intentionally dishonest. I really think like she lacks certain self-reflective capacities. I do. I agree very much. So. Yeah. <laughs> so like, you can tell it has it does have a ch- and a childlike quality. It does. She doesn't have it. Yeah. Exactly. Like she doesn't. In in a way, like Barbara's not a hypocrite. She doesn't have the capacity to be. Like she doesn't have the knowledge in some ways (laughs) that would make her a hypocrite. It's really Mm -hmm. interesting. Like if Mm -hmm. she were a hypocrite, she'd be better at hiding it. You know what I mean? Right. So so I'm like thinking that. Right. Yeah. It's like if, if anyone was like reading this for like PR, you know, they would have made you take out X, Y, and C. <laughs> like, yes. Well, like, that's another thing. You're reading it going, once again, you feel like she had total control. Like there was no one to tell her, you know, this gets repetitive. This is, it's just too damn long. We got to mm-hmm. cut here. We got, there's no, you just give them like, no one's telling her this. Not, it's not all soul. in because she wants it all in. And that's how she's run her career for a very long time now. So who's going to say no? I mean, totally. Like, here's an example. This this jumped out to me when I was reading it. Her dear arranger, Peter Matz, who arranged mm. all of those fabulous albums in the 60s. She worked with him again on the Broadway album in the 80s. They had actually had a brief and like very emotional, it seems, affair mm. um, in the late 60s, I think, finally, or the early 70s. Yeah. 
and he was married and it, you know, it couldn't go on. It didn't last long, um, but they worked together so closely and they were kind of like, you know, musically so entwined. The attraction makes sense. And it, it makes sense also how it was like pretty emotional, even though it was brief. So mm. anyway, she she invites him back to arrange to do some arrangements on the Broadway album in the 80s, 86, 85, something mm. like that. And um, he, like you don't get a lot about uh, did they talk about their relationship? Yes or no. It doesn't seem like they did. But she has a like a paragraph or two about being disappointed in him she wanted to like work overtime and you know Mm. get something perfect and he seemed uninterested in that Mm. and she was disappointed in him for being like less interested in the project than she was but as an aside she sort of writes we had to we had to let go of like some of Peter's (laughs) arrangements because I wanted a more contemporary sound Mm. and she didn't like connect the dots I'm like Barbara you probably really hurt his feelings like you didn't want his arrangements even though you hired him like yeah, yeah I'd, I'd probably be sullen too if you knocked like <laughs> two or three of mine off for some godforsaken synthesizer bullshit that ended up on there you know <laughs> that's right but that's really... um but again it's like said without awareness and it's yeah. like yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> she... there's a lot of the that's a good really good example there's a lot of, and, and and there's a wonderful description of her wanting to go on and on and on which she, she will she's in, in she, people pay tributes clearly to her work ethic she'll mm-hmm. go on and on and on 12 hours 18 hours whatever Easy. to get it perfect is, is in her view anyway as perfect as it can be and she saw him looking at his watch and it yep. was just like what that well that's it then and so they and then the last line is and we never work together again and you're like no i guess not (laughs) because like barbara are you kidding he fucking made you i mean not really but they were you know his his arrangements were responsible for so much of her style and flavor Mm -hmm. devastating um maybe we can can we spend a little time with the music yeah oh let's definitely yeah okay so, like, what I loved about this is I haven't heard as much until the memoir about Barbara's early influences musically. Like, a lot of this is news to me, and it was so exciting. Um, so I did know, and, like, you know, if you read Barbara's biographies, her grandfather was a cantor. So, you know, she goes to synagogue with him. Obviously, she grows up with Hebraic music. Um, she's long professed her love for Judy Garland. She'll often say things in interviews like, you know, I think Judy Garland has like the greatest voice of all time or whatever. And it's, you can hear that. They're very different singers, but Streisand mm-hmm. sort of picks up the torch from Garland in terms mm-hmm. of like an emotionality. You know, this is going to be our big emotional ballad singer of this next generation. Mm-hmm. But what I didn't know is how widely she listened to like jazz, blues. So mm-hmm. she names Ornette Coleman, mm-hmm. Miles Davis. There's even a wild moment where she like auditions for, was it the Bone Swart? It was some Greenwich Village nightclub with Miles Davis's band. Oh, right. Like, That's oh, right. I forgot that. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> Um, wow yeah yeah and then um, ma rainey which i can totally hear i mean she does especially in the 60s right she does that sort of like um uh, low down and dirty shouter Mm -hmm. kind of thing so ma rainey bessie smith and then totally mind-blowing to me oh it makes sense and it doesn't make sense billy holiday's lady in satin comes up like several times and Mm -hmm. For Billy Holiday fans out there, that's, you know, one of the last studio albums. And it's like an extremely sensitively sung album. But the voice is totally ragged by this point. Mm-hmm. Billy Holiday's voice. Mm-hmm. So that blew my mind because here's Barbara Streisand, a, a perfectionist. And I did mm-hmm. not think she would have a taste for that kind of singing. 
But of course, it makes sense that she loves Billie Holiday. Like what Barbara gets from jazz is that like totally unexpected, uh, you know, Barbara's very improvisatory, like Billie Holiday. She never sings a song the same twice mm. in a row. And she's always picking some weird ass note to end on some just like odd oblong, you know, like to the side asymmetrical thing. Um, and I see that I can hear that coming from both like the Hebraic music and from the jazz influence, especially Billie Holiday. Mm-hmm. So that was cool as hell. And then mm-hmm. to know, <laughs> to learn that she loves Maria Callas, no, especially I right? I knew you'd be thrilled. <laughs> Game recognized game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and specifically Senza Mama, not my favorite Aria, you know, but a good one. Um, you know, that that was so it was just really exciting for me. It helped me put together a lot of things in my mind. Oh, you have heard that. Doesn't she do the whole does she do the whole album or just a couple of uh, she, I can't on classical Barbara, she does not sing any callous repertoire. She doesn't okay. there's like no Puccini. She kind of doesn't have that kind of voice, but right. I think that she was just inspired by listening to opera in general to do mm. classical Barbara, which mm. is much more like, you know, handle things for like lighter, higher voices. Mm. But it, um, I don't know. It was just it was really exciting to to read about all of her influences in that early moment of just she. So she graduated high school a year early to get the fuck out of her house, which was, mm. you know, oppressive. Uh, no one, it's not even that anyone didn't believe in her. It seems like no one talked to her in general. And when they did, it was like insulting. Um, yeah. Her take is like, there was just no interest slash support, certainly not from her mother. Her mm-hmm. mother seemed almost a- actively hostile. Certainly once she, once she's rising as a singer, her mother mm-hmm. herself sang very, very well. But mm-hmm. later said she was just too shy to pursue it. So she never did anything with it. But then her, when her daughter becomes huge um, as a star, like beyond, even beyond ordinary star in this like incandescent international colossal fame, her mother is constantly um, slighting her. But it sounds like it goes, they were never at all simpatico, like at all. No. Um, and, you know, the father who died very, very, when she was so little, she does, had no memory of him and her mother never talked about him. So she had no sense of her father at all. Later, she had to invest, do all this investigation and find out all these things that she found amazing because she was like, well, that's where I got that. I even looked like she hadn't, she hadn't even seen pictures of him. There were no photos mm-hmm. that were shown to her. Nothing. And she even, she does say dismissively of her brother, Shel- Sheldon, right? Sheldon. Yeah, Sheldon. But, you know, he never would back her up in, on, in the street. You know, he would never back her up anywhere. Yeah. Very, very, also very harsh about that, you know. Yeah, they're living in Brooklyn and, you know, kids are, it's, you know, it's kind of hard of a hard place to grow up. Mm -hmm. Uh, You got to fight for respect on the street. And she Mm -hmm. thought she could look up to her older brother to have her back and he didn't. So she felt very, very alone, which explains the total reliance on self, you know. Yes. Um, And also (laughs) the total individuality. It seems like she was in this vacuum. Yes. Of, of self-creation, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, she it's, does give her mother some credit. Her mother was in a kind of dire situation to, to lose. The husband is her. The husband is what, 35 when he dies. Yeah. And she's now got to support two kids. And that's that's how her life is decided in, in a not great way. So yeah. she, it's not like she doesn't acknowledge that. But at the same time, it was, you know, it's a very yeah harsh, isolating um, upbringing. 
Yeah, it sounds like, um, so like there was, I think like eight-year-old Sheldon and little baby Barbara, maybe maybe Sheldon was a little younger, uh, and they, it sounds like the family, when her father was alive, had a tenuous grasp on like lower middle-classness. Lower middle-class, yeah. Yeah, her father, he actually had a PhD in literature from Columbia mm. University, and he was energetic, athletic, um, to her mother's like a little more like, you know, dour, fatalistic, um, mm. but but pretty, uh, you know, uh, his was Diana was his wife. And um, mm. he was a teacher for, I think, uh, was it um, oh, no, like troubled youth? Yeah, um, Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he was, you know, he was a good guy outgoing and the future looked bright. It seemed like he was only projected to do better and better and better. And then he had a seizure and he died from complications from the seizure. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they, they ended up having to move back in Diana and her two kids, including baby Barbara with uh, Diana's parents in a Brooklyn housing project. And it was mm-hmm. five people in a one bedroom apartment, which sucked. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Diana married Barbara's stepfather out of the blue without even telling her, like, she didn't right. know this guy was even in the picture. She didn't know her mother was dating anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was horrible to her. Like, yeah. If he did talk to her, it was usually to insult her, to tell her something like, you know, she was ugly or, you know, yeah. whatever. So, um, yeah, sounds like a sunny upbringing. But yeah. um, <laughs> the blasting out of there early, you know, makes makes all the sense in the world. And and she's just so assertive about putting herself forward in whatever she's going for and single minded to such an extraordinary degree that she's got she's got as unhappy as that is. That's it's not that unusual <laughs> in reading showbiz biographies to, to be like. That's exactly the kind of, you know, background that propels people into the the, the intense, single focus drive um, mm-hmm. to make it early. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah, right. There's nothing to go back to. And and she doesn't, you know, she launches out of there at what, 16, 17, yeah. takes any job she can doing anything remotely connected to show business. By 18, she's singing at hip Greenwich Village clubs mm-hmm. um, got a job singing because she can't really get any leading lady roles which is mm-hmm. what she wants um, and again just like the like Eileen was saying the song selection is so sophisticated like taking Leonard Bernstein songs for children and mm-hmm. like turning them on their head you know like reinterpreting who will buy from Oliver so that it's not about like a sunny morning. It sounds like a jaded woman of the world. Like it's so radically creative and fun. Mm -hmm. All of her, the whole decade of the sixties is just like Mm -hmm. mind blowing. Yeah. But then, and I didn't know this, the memoir revealed this to me. Mm -hmm. Motherfucking Clive Davis every time is at the scene of the crime. So Mm -hmm. Barbara was under contract to Columbia records and, um, Goddard Lieberson had been the guy in charge for a while and he was like more classically minded. And then Clive Davis takes over in like, I think 1970, 1970, 1971. And Barbara's preparing an album of dagger to the heart for me, uh, Kurt Vile, Bertolt Brecht songs. Mm -hmm. And Clive Davis is like, you can't record that. That's not cool. Um, why don't you record these songs by Paul Simon and the Beatles instead? (laughs) Oh, and Barbara, <laughs> one of her worst albums of all time called What About Today? It makes me want to die. She's got like a huge weird fro on the front. Um, and uh, she see I, I that shocked me. It shocked me that she didn't fight. Yeah, that's, that's very 
Yeah, that's the weird part. I and as as this rolls on with Clive, who keeps telling her to record this pop rock and disco, and he's not wrong. Uh, like even though what about today bombed Stony End, where where she records Laura Nero's song, um, which she admits she did not understand the lyrics to for mm-hmm. forty nine years. <laughs> <laughs> She finally figured out what some of them mean uh, when she was in her 70s. Um, But, you know, she she didn't have any insight about this music, but she recorded Stony End in 71. It was a huge hit. So Mm -hmm. Clive Davis's money making instincts were right. And I mean, what's interesting for me is there's only like uh, one or two pages about this, but she does express uneasiness. Um, Mm -hmm. She does say, I wasn't sure what I could add to these songs. She Mm -hmm. even says, I was always a bit leery of commercial success. I was like, really? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Was I losing my edge? And it's like, yes, you are. Um, So I, you know, she's aware, like that's the most awareness, this sort of like back and forth in these two pages that you Mm -hmm. get in the entire book. Um, mm. she ends up being <coughs> very flexible. I'm sure she's very gratified for how well her music did, but it's like, mm. you know, you know that along, she feels like she lost her way because she comes back with the Broadway album in the eighties, which despite its overproducedness, I mean, really does have like some stunning vocal performances. Mm. Um, and that's and like no a one wants to do it, which I, I think I had forgotten. It was such a colossal hit. And nobody wanted to do it initially. There was all this pushback and she had to fight, of course. It's one of her tri- one of her many triumphal stories where yes. it turned out to be so right that when, you know, a couple of years later she wants to do the fall, you know, an, uh, a sequel album, of course everyone's all over her then because the other one made so much money. Yep. Yep. So, um, you know, it's like, it's there and it's not. It's not conscious on the surface, this tremendous loss. But throughout the 70s, she does admit kind of like album after album. She admits her biggest contribution to the guilty album was the outfits on the cover. (laughs) (laughs) The cover because she always gets to choose the cover. So it's always like, I don't want to do that because that would be obvious. So and I and I hate posing. So I. Yeah, someone took the shot of me on the beach or something. So yeah, yeah, a lot That's of that. the People album. I didn't know that either. So, um, what's up, Chicagoans? People is Barbara like early one morning watching the sunrise after doing a performance in Chicago. It's on Lake Michigan. Mm-hmm. So that sort of like backshot. Anyway, now we know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's also with her. You know, you see see something similar with her early films. There's this kind of. You know, when, she'll get shoved into things and be hugely regretful, but she'll have these passion projects that she she's in. You know, we, we watched Up the Sandbox, which is very obscure now. Yeah. Sand movie that I guess it did do, did do badly. Is that right? From yeah, it did, it did not do well. Didn't do well. But she was because it's a kind of very feminist in a, in a, in a very typical of that era's, you know, um, mm-hmm. feminism in film. Mm-hmm. Um, she was just into it tremendously like you know and 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 for many of her movies she she spends chapters reassessing what worked what didn't what scenes were cut by directors that should have been kept i often disagree wildly with her but you know sometimes (laughs) i don't know what she's talking about and blah 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 Uh but she just minute reassessments that sort of suggest this is this is the 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 before she's ever a producer before she's a director she's Mm -hmm. already thinking very much in terms of I can assess what they're doing and it's, they're not doing the right thing. That's not what I would do kind of thing. Uh So that is interesting that she really gets into the weeds of these things, like minute descriptions of scenes. I think (laughs) it's the way we were. There are two 
two scenes <laughs> that are that are cut that we read all about. And you know, she's not wrong in that the clear thing that happens is they cut out all the real politics about the blacklist era. Uh-huh. Those are the scenes that get sliced, which does make me want to see the restored version, which she, there yeah. is a version out there. I just bought it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now that I'm actually interested in seeing, because that's so typical, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so she makes a lot of sense there. But then there's a couple of other things where, like, she wants the Swan Lake scene in... A funny, funny girl, girl extended. Are you mad, and, Barbara? I know. And you're like, and you, you watch the Swan Lake scene. You're like, oh, God, this is this is the one interminable scene that you kind of wish isn't there at all. Totally. Yeah. That yeah. was I'm totally with you. That would drag the whole damn thing down. It's like Babs. Oh, you yeah. got good instincts, but mm-mm. <laughs> not, not in that case. So sometimes it's just whatever. It's her. It's a pet obsession um, that she can't let go years and mm-hmm. years later. But yeah, her investment in in films, and she's quite aware of this. She's she's building her own profile toward how I wound up directing. Is because <laughs> even with Will, William Wyler, who did funny, who did Funny Girl, did a great job with it. It was his last completed film. Mm-hmm. You know, and she's full of admiration for him. She's just you know she's already kind of questioning some of his choices, and that's only going to increase as she goes on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And when it comes to Yentl, it is amazing her struggle to get Yentl made mm-hmm. in light of her superstardom at this point. Yes, because no one wants to make it because who wants to make, me. you know, at the time, especially it's a movie about, based on, <laughs> on an Isaac Singer story about a Jewish girl who wants to study. The, and yeah, and you can just see the, the, the graying faces of producers as they hear these descriptions. Totally. What? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And, and I never made this connection. She does have, she's not like, she doesn't go on and on about this, but it is interesting. She says, you know, she's like, yeah, most people in Hollywood with, you know, most investors and producers, they're, they, they're Jewish, but you mm-hmm. don't, they don't want to be explicit about it. There's right. like a certain type of Jewishness, like the type oh. in 19th century Poland, <laughs> you don't put on screen. Right. And there's so, <laughs> such anxiety in Hollywood always had been for decades to assimilate as much as possible because of the fear of we're at the top of now what is now what it wasn't when when the Jewish moguls first got in. Of course, they were coming out of like, you know, businesses like textiles and glove salesmen and junk <laughs> junk yeah. merchants trying to find a foothold in a new industry. But once they're at the top of the industry and the majority of studio heads are Jews, mm-hmm. they become very, very nervous of like, is this going to, how long will this sit well with a, you know, a kind of wasp dominated um, culture? Yeah. So yeah, the drive to, you know, keep this all under wraps. <laughs> yeah. It was strong uh, right up through into the 70s and 80s. And there's still, I'm sure so there's some residual right now. It, totally, totally. And I mean, it was really interesting. Like, so, you know, she gets this w- story in 1968, wants to make it. She starts really pushing in the 70s, like after mm-hmm. A Star is Born. And A Star is Born, Barbara's A Star is Born in 1976, is the second highest grossing film of the year. That was the one that shocked me. I thought that yep. somehow I had had a vague idea that failed. Oh, no, no. Not, totally not commercially. <laughs> no. I was like, wow, I did not know. So, yeah, that was one of them. Yeah, second only to Rocky. So, 
you know, she's at the top of her game. She's just won. Oh, she won an Oscar for a first woman to win an Oscar for composing. She wrote Evergreen, the love theme from A Star is Born. Mm-hmm. And, you know, riding high and cannot get Yentl made to save her life. Finally decides to, like, make it a musical because people keep asking, are you going to sing? And she's like, mm. um, sure, I guess. <laughs> so <laughs> well, that was the only way to get it done. Yep. Yep, they said, if you'll sing, maybe we'll consider it. So that's how they come up with all those Papa Can You Hear Me, all those interior monologue um, yeah. songs. Yeah. Yeah. But that I mean, a- hey, the music's by Michelle Legrand, like no slouch, you know, mm-hmm. the guy who wrote Umbrellas of Cherbourg for, I don't know, Jacques Demi heads out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, what, I don't know. I, I th- We disagree on Yentl, but I think there's something about Yentl that I, I think... Barbara's like being forced to fight for it makes it good. And the financial constraint helps make Mm -hmm. it good. I'm a fan of Yantel. I love Michelle Legrand. I love the music. I love Barbara. But, um, you know, she didn't have that much money to make it. She was a first time director. So there was so much riding on her. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, not ruining her reputation. Mm-hmm. And of course, like to have a woman direct, a, you know, an A-list Hollywood film uh, hadn't been done since what? Ida Lupino and Lupino, yeah. movies. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, that's um, right. Yeah. So, it, it, you know, incredible pressure. And of course, everyone's taking shots at her for wanting to do everything, direct, mm-hmm. produce. She even she wrote the screenplay. She did not put that in the credits. Because she mm-hmm. didn't, she thought it'd be too much. People don't want her to do everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but she did. She did mm-hmm. fucking everything on that film. And just to hear her tell about the filming, you know, there were no five-star hotels for her to stay in, mm-hmm. in like bumfuck Czech Republic. Yeah. Um, they were like in the homes, hosted by families. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they had to work with natural light. She had this lovely British crew who she speaks about absolutely glowingly. It sounds like they got along, you know, very well. Mm-hmm. And I think that helps make the film good i think barbara thrives under that kind of pressure and i do think there's like a texture to yentl that's like very beautiful and like closer to something real <laughs> than mm-hmm. than the later films like the prince of tides or the yes, mere head oh, very much so. and her certainly her it's moving her descriptions of when she finds like the, the the street with the kind of house you know that are lost into in in time yes. Um, and the lighting effects they're trying to achieve and all of the kind of shots. And and yes, it's, it's wonderful to read about her as she says, well, the British, they're polite. So, yeah. so even if any of these guys are having trouble taking orders from her, you know, sets and film crews, very, very macho atmosphere um, often. Mm-hmm. And a huge struggle even for men who are new to come in and you have to go through this, all this jockeying to establish your dominance and absurdity like that. (laughs) And that they were all so supportive of her. And, you know, that's going to kind of make it a shock when she doesn't get the same thing for her later for like Prince of Tides. Mm -hmm. Um, So that what that was that made it a more impressive film for me. I can't stand the film. I barely made it through <laughs> once. I doubt I'll ever get through it again. I <laughs> uh, can't bear it. Cannot bear it. Um, and she also has. It's very interesting to read about how horrifically badly Mandy Patinkin behaved. Oh, just, just awful to her the entire time. It's amazing she didn't fire him. Amazing. Um, yeah, because he just wouldn't cooperate. Wouldn't work with her was rude, was dismissive, was rude, to, horribly rude to everybody. And later, of course, he told her he was, it was because he was terrified and overawed, but too little too late, my God. And he wanted, to, he wanted her to do something for him. And she's like, 
you know, man, you, you, you made my life hell for months and months and months. And now you want me to do you this favor. I can't, I can't bear it. I forget. It was, I think like write the liner notes on something. You wanted to sing of all things. Yes. And you wanted her to write the liner notes. And she said, no, yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Just gratuitously terrible throughout, which I'm always amazed. I mean, films are so hard to make. It's always Mm -hmm. so incredible how that, but nine times like in my view experiences even in my little indie experiences there's almost always one or a few people who are like that yeah we're just a constant misery the entire time and yet don't get fired and and just make everyone's life hell it just seems like it's practically built into the system so he was the one for that one yeah you're right and there's two whole chapters in heavy detail devoted to yentl which makes sense in a way because of course it was a very pinnacle kind of experience um so Mm -hmm. yeah and she got totally just dragged for that film. Yeah. I mean, it, it's so interesting, the reception to Yentl. Like, you could study it forever, but she got she won a Golden Globe, which, of course, is given by the Hollywood Foreign Press for mm-hmm. directing, first ever to a woman. And her film was nominated, Yentl was nominated for several Academy Awards. And again, she produced, directed, starred in, sang it, wrote it. She was not a nominated for anything to having yeah. to do with it. And that seemed like a very obvious snub. Um, and that I, I just remember like being alive. I mean, I was too young when Yentl came out. I was just a baby, but mm. Yentl was still a butt of jokes through the nineties. You'd hear mm. it on late night all the time. Mm. It was funny because it was like Jewish and about, it was about a girl pretending to be a boy and it was mm. Barbara Streisand. And like, it's just a whole mix of like racism and misogyny mm. in mm. the reception to Yentl. Like mm. it made people really uncomfortable. <laughs> and you know i mean that doesn't mean you can't like it not like it for other reasons mm-hmm. <laughs> but um i think that really hurt her and in a way she doesn't say this i mean she says she's hurt you know mm-hmm. she certainly doesn't want to go to the academy awards when yentl is up for stuff um but i think that makes her like fly and stay in this really safe material for the rest of her career mm-hmm. that's my that's my read mm-hmm. um there, there are things she pushes for again, but they're never like, you know, Yentl, despite the fact that, yeah, in the 80s, I, the culture was progressive enough that this wasn't like, you know, so shocking or anything. Um, I think the fact that it does make people so uncomfortable that it mm. is a punchline um, indicates that it is still doing some important work, you know, mm. but but the stuff that she gets invested in thereafter is just you know, like pure schmaltz, like yeah. <laughs> even, no, and even still, the more, yeah, she still talks about it in the same terms. I mean, she spends a tremendous amount of yeah. time on Prince of Tides as, you know, I haven't gotten to the mirror has two faces. I'm assuming mm-hmm. she, she does again. So again, there's that sense that seems odd that someone who has such, um, what intriguing and refined tastes in some mm-hmm. really great, great work sometimes seems as if, I don't know if she's just protecting herself, Right. She seems to be able to invest equally in something that seems like obviously less, less challenging, less interesting, less refined, less, less everything. Yeah. I'm with you. I had that same, I was so puzzled. I'm like, Barbara, do you really think this is, these are same? Yeah. 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 And she keeps repeating things like when I'm directing, I care the least about me. So, you know, so she was kind of answering the, the arguments of other people, critics who have suggested she's, (laughs) 
her vanity is writ large and taking, you know, wanting to do control everything and take credit for everything and be the star of everything. And she's like, actually, that's just not true. I'm not even that interested. In it. But then you watch Prince of Tides. <laughs> just, you can't believe how many vanity shots there are of her. It's like she's so anxious to look good. I know. That she, she makes her 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 psychiatrist character Lowenstein, Doctor Lowenstein, just absurd because it's just the Vaseline on the lens and the, the filter okay. and the the look at her legs. Aren't her legs great? You know, she's always posing in a way that lo- makes her look, you know, pretty and sexy. Her hair is just done to the max, and you're like, and there's tons of it throughout the entire film, just tons of it, and to the point that you're like. I, do you not remember this? Are you, but she watched her, these things again. You know, she watched things. She listened to things. She did all this work for the memoir so that she'd remember. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, she just, it didn't strike her as like, Okay, wow. but Eileen, let us pause, okay? Yeah. We know how she got like this. So oh, this she's is- terribly worried about being considered pretty and attractive and sexy. Terribly worried, which she acknowledges. Yeah, exactly. And we have not discussed the most important chapter, which is hidden in page 800. <laughs> it starts at like page 799. So the thing about this memoir is there are, there's no fucking index. Okay. No, you wouldn't allow an index. And that made, they got a lot of press. Like, so you couldn't, you couldn't look yourself up or you couldn't look up pieces. You have to wade through it. <laughs> to read 970 pages if you want to find a reference to like Marlon Brando or whatever. Yeah, but okay. Yeah. So you got to wait, you got to earn it. But around, once you make it through 799 pages, there's a single chapter. It's not long. It's called My Mother. Yeah. And it <laughs> is scary. Yeah. yeah. Her mother is quite frightening because she's so cold and removed <sighs> and punitive that it's, it's quite devastating. I mean, like, the, 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 what is it that she's giving this fabulous concert that people are fighting for tickets? It's yeah, Barbara, huge. the concert. Come on, in the 90s? Yeah. It's just this huge, and it's on New Year's Eve. Yeah, so in Las Vegas. A ticket for her mother and her mother's friends or whatever. And when she's performing, it's on New Year's Eve, and she's, and she's plus, it's, she has such terrible crippling stage fright, which, by the way, it's an interesting anecdote how she gets stage fright. She's fine through Funny Girl. And she has a brief affair with Sidney Chaplin, the son of Charlie Chaplin, who was a successful minor actor. And she breaks it off. I think they're both married or involved with other people. And she breaks it off. And he spends the rest of the run of the show whispering just vile things in her ear while she's trying to perform as Fanny Mm -hmm. Bryant. So it's so horrible that she's become so terrified. She's going to, of course, blow up in her lines or her business, which she never does because she has this phenomenal memory that it gives her horrible stage fright for the rest of her career. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so she's, so she's battling through that and she gets out there and she's performing and she sees that her mother and her mother's friends aren't in her seats. Mm-hmm. And she finds out that they decided, you know, the handlers tr- try to get them to their seats. And her mother says, Oh, we don't feel like going. We want, mm-hmm. it's New Year's Eve. We want to go out. Yeah. <laughs> And, and the handler's like, look at the line. <laughs> These are people who are just hoping there will be any seats from no-shows. That they, they're wait, they've been waiting for hours and hours and hours. Everybody wants to be here and you're leaving. And they left. They mm-hmm. left. Yeah. Because yeah. her mother, you know, it was like a way of suggesting you think you're so great, but you're not so great. And it's, it seems like, th- I mean, throughout her life, and like, if you know about Barbara, you know this, you know, like her mother was not supportive. Her mother even gave interviews early on, like around Funny Girl to, to like the New York Times saying yeah. things like, 
Well, I was against it. I never thought of her as an actress. I didn't think she was attractive enough. And she wasn't good looking enough. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, okay. Ow. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, but there, I mean, uh, I didn't know any of this stuff. So Barbara um, says the first time she realized there was something really wrong with her mother was Christmas 1964. Kind of cute. Barbara celebrates Christmas. Yeah, she's Jewish, but she likes to open presents. Mm-hmm. Um, so she had just become fu- famous with Funny Girl on Broadway. She and Elliot Gould were having family and friends over on Christmas Eve, opening gifts. And her, her Barbara starts opening gifts and getting some attention. And her mother just throws a fit. Why is she giving gifts? You should be giving me gifts. I'm the mother. I'm the She'd mother. The line is, me. I'm the mother. <laughs> <laughs> there will be multiple occasions. <laughs> At one point, she's scr- Barbara is alerted that her mother is in the restroom, shrieking, yeah. and has to be like, stopped um Barbara's getting a lifetime achievement award in 1984 when that happens i'm the mother and everyone i she would be nothing without me i should get all the credit like the real real nutter (laughs) real nutter and you're just like strangers gaping in horror at her (laughs) so Um, so like this is why i i can't i mean yes okay i could see that she wants to make herself look good in her films but i can't it's just like uh, the wound is so great i'm just like oh my god poor babs i mean it, well, but it is interesting given that in yentl the concern is not that she looks good but can she pass as a as boy a, as a younger as a young man She's almost 40 by the time she finally can make, I think she's 38 or 39, by the time she can finally make the film. It's both, can she pass as as a young man? It's both age and, you know, a kind of gender concern that really seems to be preoccupying her. And you're never watching it going, she's worried that that she isn't looking attractive. True. That's not a preoccupation that she has at all. In fact, she she talks about it and you can see it reflected in the film that she's always worried about Amy, about bringing out the beauty of Amy Irving. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's many, many shots devoted to making Amy, Amy Irving look wonderful. Um, so you're like, what happened? It's almost like there's mm-hmm. a regression and a sudden, like now a terrible level of concern because she's playing a professional woman who in fact, the romantic side of her life is kind of dying out in a bad marriage. Oh, in so Prince of Tides. odd to have that emphasis there. It's like something, <laughs> something, unfortunate revived in her that made her ever more anxious that she looked good yeah but um, lowenstein's gotta be sexy you know like it's a whole it's a primary love story well i know but barbara streisand is sexy young barbara streisand i can i always remember you know everyone just being shocked at how wonderful she looked on film yeah and someone someone i forget who someone involved in the film saying you couldn't have known this from the stage everyone knew she was great on the stage but who mm-hmm. knew that her skin was gonna glow on film yeah that, that's just that's just an accident some people's don't do some people's bone structure does wonderful things some don't who knew she was going to be just fabulous on film well she is she looks sensational she and is Groucho Marx, who just adored her said you know it said you would make everyone else look like battered repaints you just look yeah. so good <laughs> you, make, you make elizabeth taylor look like an old bag <laughs> Yeah. 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 So so she had a lot of reaffirmation about especially you know she she and she designs her own look. It's wonderful. She really has a great instinct for hair and you know in her early years, hair, jewelry, clothing, makeup. She does her own makeup. 
and it's, you know, that wonderful kind of Egyptian eye makeup. It's great. Mm -hmm. You know, so she really has had many, many years of kind of being able to come around and, and be told many, many times, you look good and you're incredibly sexy on film. And, but that she's still so worried about it is, it's, it just gets odder. And then, of course, the subject of her next film, <laughs> The Mirror has two, has two Faces, is the crisis of a woman whose mother didn't tell her she was pretty. Now it's the top of the film. But it's real. It really. I mean, how could you ever recover from that? Like, you can't, you know? You can't. Yes. The whole world can tell you're pretty, and you can have a but trophy I mean, room. Is, it, is that really a preoccupation? For yes! Okay. How can it not be? Like, what for someone is not been defined by that? Gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous star for a million years? Not enough. Her mother didn't think so. Her mother didn't think so. I don't know. It just seems like someone who at the same time is like getting politically aware, getting concerned. Do you think Barbara Ehrenreich would have ever written a long book about my mother never, who had a horrible relationship with her mother. My yeah. mother never told me I was pretty and that's defined my life. You're <laughs> different. Barbara Ehrenreich's not in show business for one thing. No, I know, but I'm just saying Barbara Streisand by, by popular acclaim redefined beauty standards so that to be included. So that everyone is saying you're gorgeous, you're beautiful. I just, I just find it amazing. Like that fifty percent yes, but fifty percent no. She still, I mean, she still gets so much shit for how she looks. You know, there's still the nose jokes. There are still oh. like I would say fifty fifty. I know where you're coming from. You're so right. Like she did. You know, she was acclaimed by in some ways anyone who matters. You know, agrees that she's beautiful and fabulous. But there's still so much she uh, people sling so much shit at her and it's it's for her nose you know it's like you could reduce it to that it's for she still gets shit about the nose <sighs> so i would say it's never it's never over it's not like everyone forgot and like accepted her as a great well, beauty it's, but it's she's someone who considers herself a feminist oh, very well. much <laughs> which oh but I, surely we can be feminists and still like you sure, know what i mean not heal the wounds I'm of the patriarchy in our you persons you wouldn't be concerned of, of whether you're an attractive person or not to other people i'm yeah. just saying that to have well she has she doesn't have any self-consciousness about anything so i don't know why I'm even going <laughs> about that. you know like is there no self-consciousness that you're so worried that the main thing that has to be true of you is you have to be considered pretty it just seems bizarre <laughs> To me. I don't find it bizarre. That's a, that's the difference. I think. Wow. Okay. I, I find we'll it like fun. To, it I will always give her a pass on this because I I can I think so I can lean on the lens, distracting shots that become crazy. Yeah, all of it. That's like the least of. That's like the number 275 of my gripes like I don't even care about that and uh -huh. I because I think I'm so sympathetic to the wound I really I can really understand how that you can never recover from that I don't think I don't think no matter what she'll ever heal that and I think it gets worse because she gets older and and because because of all the all the acclaim she kind of didn't get for Yentl you know I mean, well, I don't know. We're playing your yes. psychiatrist now. <laughs> but anyway, we'll just leave yeah. it at that. Yeah. For whatever reason, it, it becomes not a, a particular concern in Yentl to a clear concern in her second movie. And then it, it's the topic of the third movie. That's the progression. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if I should beat. Should I beat this dead horse or should we go on? I have a Peter Travers line that I have a, a oh, bone to pick with. Okay, so I'll never forget reading Amir Has Two Faces review by Peter Travers of mm -hmm. Rolling Stone in 1996. Mm -hmm. And it 
said something to the effect of like, um, this, you know, what kind of what you're saying, you know, like this movie is about how Barbara's mother never told her she's pretty. Mm-hmm. Um, like, is she, like, can she please making us make us stop sitting through movies like this? Um, cause she needs to hear that. Let's just everybody all at once tell Barbara, yes, you're very pretty. Um, I, I remember reading that as a kid and thinking like you fucker, like, I just thought that was like out of bounds. And I read, Peter Travers' review of, I was like, what's another schmaltzy movie that came out around that time that was a man movie? Mm. Um, It was um, Field of Dreams. Mm. So I read the Peter Travers' Field of Dreams piece, which, of course, does rotate around, like, a father-son bond. Um, Mm. But he doesn't mention that. Like, he doesn't make fun of that. You know, like, father-son bonds are things that are not worthy of scorn. But, like, Mm. mother-daughter things, you know, beauty, uh, concerns about looks, like, that that is so i i'm always gonna stick up for that because i think like you know whether or not that should be a concern it simply is for women you know even if you're the best feminist out there no, like I'm not saying it isn't a concern i mean especially if you take away the, the whole pretty pretty thing that someone drives me crazy everyone <laughs> of course is concerned whether they're a physically attractive person especially in a culture with the hugest emphasis ever on it of course mm-hmm. But I'm just saying, are you going to let it dictate huge work? You're not going to, someone, you're someone who's not going to direct that many films. <laughs> are you going to make it a distracting issue in one movie where that's not the point at all? And then the topic, it just seems so, she let it take over so much when, again, this is a person who has just been stroked. I mean, my mother never told me I was pretty. If I spent really? the rest of my life writing slavishly, you know, another thing <laughs> I've suffered my whole life because my mother never told me, I just can't even after a certain point, I, I don't even know if it's a wound, but you certainly, you know, you weren't, I wasn't praised for anything. Nobody was in my family. There wasn't a lot of praise going on. Well, um, they, I mean, the, but just the idea that you then go on the rest of your life obsessing and, and making it take over the, the limited amount of really hard and demanding work you're going to do. That's going to be like, this is this is kind of uh, what these are the rare big works I'm going to do in film. It, 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 I just find that mad. That's all. Well, true. I'm not so sure she knew that she'd only make a handful of films. You know, sounds like she had a lot that she wanted to keep going. Um, mm-hmm. But I, th- I think there's a difference between not being praised and then being actively told like you're ugly, which is what yeah. happened in her family. Um, but I, you know, I don't know. I, the, I guess the point of my take is like, I'm endlessly sympathetic to that. It doesn't ruin the films for me. The mirror is two faces is not a great film because it's just like not a good, I mean, it's enjoyable. You know, I like Barbara. I find her charming to look at mm-hmm. no matter what, but like, it's, you know, it's lightweight. It doesn't have cr- carry a great deal of like weight in the world. It doesn't shed light on a lot of things. <laughs> well, you made it. You made it. We, when you were talking before, you made an interesting point that that in order to thrive creatively, you said bar- something like Barbara needs a hostile world, mm-hmm. and that seems like that's. I hadn't thought about that. That seems really true. Like no matter what the specific topic is, she tends to put herself in a situation where she's just battling against a world that is trying to put her down in some way. Yes, I think so. And when mm. she doesn't, then you get garbage, you know, then you get mm. the the recordings of the last 30 years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the yeah. films and yeah. 
I guess you're right. Even the mirror has two faces does, is a little bit of a battle. You know, it's a battle to convince us that she's pretty. <laughs> but, right. Well, but, and she's got a battle to completely read, you know, remake herself because she's she's sort of in she's internalized um this this critique of her looks. And so yeah. she's you know, she's gonna have to remake herself to yeah. Yeah, for um, sure. But there's a lot of that, you know, up the sandbox is, you know, this 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 young woman who is, you know, taking care of the young children and the husband who's unthinkingly going to admittedly a demanding job. It's clearly a tenure track, you know, professorship job, but she's trapped and she can't, she's just struggling to be able to see her, her, her time as valuable. She's struggling with the real basics. Is there going to be any way that she gets time to develop herself, to follow her own ambitions, to do any of this? Because again, part of her has just internalized this idea of your time isn't worth it. You're supposed to be, you're always going to be shoved back into the kitchen and into the, you know, the nursery. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, high flown fantasies she's having, uh, you know, that are breaking out fantasies, um, of rebellion throughout the, mm. the movie. So there, you know, there, she does do that a lot. There's a lot of being shoved back into your lowly place and having to fight your way back out again. That seems right. to be her specialty. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And yeah, that, I mean, that's another way that the, like her increasing material wealth and mm -hmm. like her increasingly limited sphere of like people yeah. she inter interacts with, like don't help her creatively. Exactly. That kills that's her. where I was going. I meant to say that. Yes. That is, yeah. it's just the, the privilege gets so rarefied that mm -hmm. as you're pointing out, as you keep reading, it's just her interacting with other other <laughs> super elite professionally wealth wise royalty it's just presidents yeah um that's those are the people she knows and meets and and the, and you know of course everything is made is made lavish and easier and yeah it doesn't seem like it really favors her her worldview um mm -hmm. as far as it's exp expressed kind of creatively i don't know has she had any late kind of late breaking triumphs a song a does no. she have no <laughs> that's my that's my impression but you know again i uh, i probably lost interest in her too early but for that very reason she I, I, such a huge star it was just became a i don't know it's it's totally fair i mean the the place where she can still like recoup is on the concert stage because you yeah. know she'll she'll sing her old songs you know um right. i saw her about a decade ago in san jose and it was exquisite like that mm -hmm. was not a wasted gajillion dollars which it cost um mm -hmm. but it, yeah. it was she's she is stunning. She is perfect. She was in her 70s. She sang Make Our Garden Grow from Candide. I mean, she sang a bunch of shit, you know, but mm -hmm. I will never forget this. I mean, Make Our Garden Grow is really hard to sing. Really, mm -hmm. really hard, you know, uh, and it's like way the fuck up there. And mm -hmm. she was flawless, just mm -hmm. flawless. So, I mean, she can still interpret a song and I'd say like, that's where you can get your, your, you know, joy with Babs is watching the concert performances. Mm -hmm. um, but like, yeah, ooh, the new albums, like, I'm not even going to name them because I don't want you to look them up. I don't want you to know. <laughs> I want to protect her. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I have to thank you because you gave me uh, a CD of um, um, her. It's just called La Bonsoir, isn't it? Which is the Yeah, Live album. at the Bonsoir. Yeah. Live at the Bonsoir, where she first came to fame. is, is She was just, just 
just knocking people dead at, at this nightclub. And then it's it's a lot it's a live recording by Columbia Records of of you know one of her evenings at Bonsoir. And it's incredible. I mean, it really can revive your sense immediately of like, God, this is just insanely. She does a version of, you know, again, she rarely did standards, but she does Cry Me a River, which is a wonderful song. She just does an epic, just epic (laughs) version of Cry Me a River that gets more and more angry and erratic and huge in its emotion as it goes. It it starts off so measured and it's just a full bill, like her fame for having a kind of, um, narrative structure in every song so that she could do a real performance an acting performance as well as a singing performance is really amazing and there's just so many songs that were fa- that she that were famous for her there were odd pieces that no one knew until she sang them and then and they're all in there and it's just like wow yeah like the sleeping bee and my yeah. name is Barbara and there were all these songs that became her version of happy days are here again where she does this very slow um um, kind of cont- almost contemplative version of this campaign song for yeah. FDR that it was very much more up tempo. So she does just it just again this amazing boldness of vision that's very complete in its execution. Yeah, at such a young age, and when when she's got her full just the incredible power, she has such a flexible, powerful voice. Yeah, that you kind of realize what we're we tend not to get that much even in you know they'll say singers who well they have an eight octave range or whatever but often it's like yeah but you don't have the interpretive capacity totally like celine dion bless like very athletic voice i am convinced she has no idea what she is singing (laughs) yeah doesn't seem to have any (laughs) ability to to analyze the lyrics and understand the emotion related to exactly so you get a lot of big voice singers who are not moving and then people who are good at interpretation but have much more limited voices. So you tend mm-hmm. to be like in that kind of choosing. Not that that's terrible. You can get wonderful singers. I I love Warren Zevon, who doesn't have you know a terrific yeah. voice by anybody. I think he's just a terrific interpreter of um, songs. Yeah. Um, so it's just this. It's just a luxury. It's just a pleasure to hear someone be that astonishing uh and you eat that the word artist is so embarrassing now because everyone claims to be an artist but she really is she really yeah. is a fully formed artist at 20 or whatever she is which yeah. is a kind of maddening but wonderful rarity for sure for sure and yeah i think we should leave her with that i mean yeah i don't know <laughs> so many conflicting emotions i oh, know it's impossible for you because you really you are really dedicated i mean she's really meant tremendous a lot to you so yeah. it's you know it's bad of me even to do <laughs> she, no, just happens, to. she just happens to strike nerves of mine uh, <laughs> just is, that, that can't be helped you know that are that i have to be like ah <laughs> she's doing that <laughs> you have to be true you have to be true to your vision <laughs> yeah. Yeah. barbara would want that <laughs> at least that's true of her she seems yeah. like she's really terribly invested in that like everybody should be straight with everybody else it's all yes. better and that does seem like that's consistent through all of her dealings mm-hmm. not that she isn't she she knows how to be tactful with power you know so there's funny things about her like trying to you know, bring John Peters along and he just is cluelessly insulting people. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, there's a number of times she seems like she was quite savvy in her ability to be both truthful and tactful when necessary. Yes. Um, 
but overall like laying it out there is better um than than not so that actually is a kind of nicely bracing quality and again and i have to say one final thing it's very 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 rare to have an actor or a singer or any any major star in any field write a memoir that really counts as like I, the word tell all is cheapened, but really seems to be trying to lay it all out there. It just mm-hmm. almost never happens. So it's always kind of exciting to read. Like someone's actually going to make this attempt, which you wonder what the payoff is for them. I guess you know everyone's called and that's something, but you're, there's a lot of shit that's going to come out that isn't that pleasant, no matter mm-hmm. what you do. And it just hardly ever happens. That's why it's almost always star biographies and not autobiographies. It's very yeah. rare. So yeah. that you took it on at all is kind of impressive. I'm with you. I never expected it. No, no. I really did not. <laughs> what would have said is going to write a 900-page memoir and really yeah. tried, really <laughs> tried to talk about all the relationships. And yeah, never would have thought. Yeah. But I, I, I'm, I for one, am glad she did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, we will stop. Um, that is the end of our of our episode. We are calling the Book of Barbara, Streisand, <laughs> um, surveying Streisand. Um, and you know, so we're we are going to wrap it up here. There's a lot. There, believe me, there's so many more topics that get covered. It's like we can talk about yeah, so much. We can talk about it. <laughs> um, but thank you for listening, and of course, triple thanks to our subscribers who keep us in rose bushes and Vaseline lenses. Um, yeah, Vaseline filters. Sorry. Um, if you're not a subscriber yet, but you like what you hear, please consider signing up with Patreon for all the film site content. Instead of just half, you can follow news of the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, join us in two weeks for more fabulous film suck content um until then thanks again for listening everyone goodbye bye